Lord, I want to thank you this morning that you're reminding us that you deliver us from all our troubles. All we need to do is call out to you. Lord, we pray today that you'll speak into our lives. And I'm going to ask, Father, that first of all, we'll hear your voice today. We'll not just hear my words as a pastor, but they'll hear the voice of God speaking into our innermost being. I pray that you'll prepare our hearts, Lord, that our hearts will be open and tender and responsive and we'll be captured by what you're going to say to us individually and also to us collectively. Father, I pray today that you would encourage, you would strengthen, you would challenge, you would affirm, you would warn all those good things that you want to do to help us become strong in you and to experience what you have in store for us. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. You may be seated. I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, New Testament book, chapter 11. We've been doing a short little series out of this book. And uh, we're really, you know, one of the most beloved, maybe famous chapters of the Bible, Hebrews chapter 11, which is kind of like the hall of faith. Now, I, I actually love history. Some of you probably know that. If you were related to me, especially if you're my family members, I drag them off to museums. I buy courses of history. I listen to lectures on history. So I'm into it, big time. I learn a lot from other people's lives. I learn from the past. How many know if we don't learn from the past, we just keep repeating the same old mistakes? It's very important we learn. The story is told of an 11th century emperor. He was the Holy Roman Emperor, actually from Germany. His name was Henry III. He was called Henry the Pious. Pious, P-I-O-U-S. That means somebody who is godly. Already we know this person is going to be a little bit concerned about what God thinks. Now, you know, we're living in the Middle Ages. Probably the people had the best life were probably the aristocratic people, right? They had more stuff. You know, being a peasant was probably pretty tough in those days, just kind of a survival mode. But this king, the burden of being a king was weighing heavily on his heart and mind. You know, usually when we think of somebody who's in charge of things, we think, well, they've got all the benefits. But we forget there's a lot of pressure and responsibilities. He was kind of hoping to just kind of terminate his kingship and go live in a monastery and become more reflective and live a contemplative life, you know, a life of prayer. And, you know, it wouldn't have to carry all the burdens of the state in his heart and mind. And so he goes to this, you know, this um, monastery and he meets the abbot, the guy that's in charge of it. And he says, well, you know, your majesty, do you understand that the pledge here is one of obedience? And that's going to be really hard for you because you've been a king. In other words, you haven't really had to obey anybody. You're telling other people what to do. So you can imagine now living in this monastery, how difficult that would be. And so the king replied and said, listen, I understand what it means. And so for the rest of my life, I will be obedient to you as Christ leads you. Well, then the abbot said, well, then I will tell you your first order of duty. Go back to your throne and serve faithfully in the place God has placed you. Now, he wasn't getting away from responsibility. You can see that, right? You know, sometimes we want to get away from responsibility. I've even had moments in my life where I could identify with King David when he said, oh, that I had wings like a dove, I'd fly away. Ever have those moments in your life where you go, it would be so nice to leave right now? Especially when it's minus 40 in the wintertime, right? We're thinking, oh, that I have wings like a dove, I'd leave. No, but 
the king went back and he served faithfully. And when he died, a statement was written about the king that went like this. This king learned to rule by being obedient. Now, I think that there's moments in our life we do get weary of responsibility. And like King Henry, we also need to be reminded that God has placed each one of us in a particular place in order to be, what? Faithful at that place. And I want to just focus on this word faithful today because it's a very important word. As a matter of fact, the whole book of Hebrews, which is really a sermon, and the pastor is preaching to his congregation, even though he wrote it out, he's communicating that they need to persevere in their faith in Christ in spite of all the challenges that they were faced with. And I talked a little bit about that last week. But the idea of this word, you know, persevering in their faith. In other words, being faithful. When people, when you talk to people, you'll soon discover that a lot of people, what they're looking for in life is to experience life to the fullest. By the way, Jesus promises us that. And so it's a good place to be turning to him to find fullness of life. But the problem for most people is that when they're looking for a life to be full, they usually try going about fulfilling this desire in a wrong manner. In other words, you know, people are trying to be happy. They're trying to experience the best life they can possibly have. But the way we go about it many times is backwards than the way we can actually attain it. And the way we go about it is just, you know, we just say, well, I'll just do whatever I want, whatever I think will please me, whatever I think this is what I want to do at this moment. And it's interesting that what happens is we run into one of life's great paradoxes. Now, the word paradox means the opposite of what we think. It's just the opposite way. And, and it goes something like this. The great paradox of life is the very way to find self-fulfillment is really forgetting about ourselves. Isn't that amazing? Here's a life. I want to live life to the fullest. I want to experience all that I can, and God says, forget about yourself. It just doesn't connect in our mind. And so I'm going to say this to us, that the happiest people, the most contented people, the people that are finding the most fulfillment in life are the people that are not focused on themselves. As a matter of fact, they're focused on Christ and they're focused on others. And because of that, they're free from all the hang-ups and the baggages that we have as human beings. Because we've got a lot of stuff going on inside of us. But a lot of that stuff keeps us from really experiencing a full life. And so Jesus says it. If you want to find life, you have to lose it for my sake. And all of those that, want to, that will try to save their lives, he says eventually they lose it. They, 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 it's the opposite of what you would think. So somehow now in this chapter, we are going to discover an interesting verse. And this is probably my text right now. It's Hebrews 11.6. If you want to just turn there, it says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now let me explain something that I think is very interesting. You know, the last few years I've been doing a lot of you know, language studies. I've been doing going back and learning, you know, Greek, which is the New Testament language. And then I've been working on Hebrew, which is the Old Testament language. 
And all of a sudden, the Bible now, it's not that I've changed my understanding, but I'm getting a deeper understanding. It's like going to the museum and you're looking at a painting. And how many know these masters literally paint a lot different than a non-master? And there's layers that you don't notice until you appreciate the art and you appreciate what painting is all about. And so what's happening is as I'm going back and I'm studying, I'm seeing layers of things that I never saw before. Let me give you an example. Today, I'm going to give you another word that really, I think, is exciting. I never realized, and it's going to make sense when I talk about it today, but I never realized that the word faith and faithful in the Greek language is the same word, pistoi. Pistoi means faith in Greek. It also means faithful. Well, you go, how do you know when to translate it faith and when to translate it faithful? I'm glad you asked that question. And I'll help you. It's real simple. The context tells you how to translate it. Either it's going to be faith or it's going to be faithful. But in one way, it's an all, almost an interchangeable idea. And I think this is going to help us because I think one of our problems in our North American culture or in our Protestant desire to help people understand that you cannot earn your way to heaven. We've tried to explain that you don't merit heaven. You can't do all these good things and somehow God owes you heaven. But that God, by his grace, gives us heaven because of what he has done on our behalf by dying on the cross. And so we get that. We're really good at understanding that. So we want to make this major distinction between God's grace for our lives and works. But sometimes we've done it so strongly that for some people, they feel like if I do anything, somehow I'm going to you know, mess up what God's done. And so we've, we've negated the idea of works in our mind or good works or doing right things or being faithful. That doesn't seem to come across as much. And we're more concerned about believing the right thing. And so we end up developing a mental assent to truth. I've got the right idea. And sometimes when we think we have the knowledge, sometimes we think that we're actually experiencing something when we just have knowledge. And what I'm going to try to get across today and show you today is that that's not enough. That true faith or the fruit of faith is that it changes something within us and we become faithful. You see, we need to understand that. And so when God is looking at our life, he's looking at the people who are truly people of faith. See, if we understood that, you know, when we look at that word faith, we we move past the, the mental ascent idea, past knowledge. We actually grasp that it means faithful. In other words, I could go down to Hebrews chapter 11 and say, by faithfulness, Abel, by faithfulness, Enoch, by faithfulness, Abraham, and I wouldn't be far off. I could say that and get away with it in this chapter. Actually, if I had a right understanding of faith, I don't even have to say by faithfulness because I know what faith, real, genuine, biblical faith is. And that's what we need to grasp today. And I'm going to look at that. So I think we've, you know, somehow I write in our culture, the biblical concept of faith has been obscured to mean something other than what the writer here is trying to convey. It is a life demonstrated by faithfulness to God. Anything less than that is not biblical faith. So in other words, if I'm not living the life, I don't really have faith. I'm just fooling myself. 
And I'm doing you a big favor today by making this major distinction so that if you are faking yourself out, that you will wake up and say, whoa, I have the right head pack, but it hasn't translated into a changed life. And that's a big deal with God. And you'll see that in a little bit. You know, it's interesting that when we read through the Gospels, the two people that Jesus commended for their faith were two non-Jewish people. They were Gentiles. Interesting, isn't it? One of them was a Roman soldier. Can you imagine, you know, sometimes when I read the, the New Testament now, in light of what I understand from the Old Testament perspective, Jesus was radical, and the writers were radical, and what, some, what they said was shocking. Because, I mean, here they are elevating a Roman soldier. Now, if you're living as a Jewish person at that time, the Romans were the ones that conquered you. They were the oppressors. And now Jesus and the writers are honoring a Roman soldier. How many think that's kind of not, not computing in people's minds? They almost feel like, you know, Jesus, you're a traitor to your own people. I mean, how can you elevate this Roman soldier? But look what Jesus says. This Roman soldier, by the way, came to Jesus and he, he, he desires for his servant to be healed, but he doesn't feel, you know, somehow he doesn't feel worthy to have Jesus come to his house. And I think sometimes we might feel like that. We don't feel worthy of God. Because, I mean, really, Jesus is God in the flesh. And so he says this, Lord, I do not deserve to have you under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Then he goes on to say this, for I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. What is he basically saying? He's saying, I know what it's like to be a person of authority. I have Roman authority. I'm not the top leader, but I'm not the bottom leader. I have people telling me what to do, but I'm also telling others what to do. And when I speak, I speak under the authority of Rome, and they have to do what I say. And he says, I know that you're a man under authority. I know that you have God's authority, Jesus. And when you say something, that's going to happen. And then he goes on to say, Jesus says this, when he heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Wow. And that's a pretty high commendation, right? I mean, Jesus is saying, this is the guy I've heard. He's not even a Jew. He's a Gentile who's got the biggest faith. That's pretty amazing. But he describes this man understanding his authority. And he describes it as great faith. What he understood was that people who have authority and can simply speak, and the expectation is that it will be done as they say, it will be faithfully carried out. See, he had faith that what Jesus said would faithfully happen. By the way, is God faithful? He's absolutely faithful. What God says he'll do. We have, we can have confidence in that. And that's what this man was saying. I know, Jesus, that whatever you say is going to happen. If you tell that this servant is going to be healed, it's going to happen. As a matter of fact, it goes on to say in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 13, then Jesus said to the centurion, go and it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed that very hour. Now that's kind of encouraging. How many are already getting an understanding? And I tried to share it a little earlier in our prayer time we got to start thinking differently when it comes to the Bible. I think we need to start embracing it. We need to start believing it and acting on it. And all of a sudden, I think we're going to see things happen because we're actually taking God at his word and acting on that. Now, the other person that comes along is a woman. 
It's really interesting because, you know, the people in that day, women had a little lower status in society. Jesus has a way of elevating everybody. And there's a woman that comes to him, and her daughter is tormented by evil spirits. And she comes to Jesus, but she's not a Jewish person. And Jesus says to her, he ignores her. This is amazing. He ignores her. Not normally Jesus' behavior, but he's doing something. But the woman does not give up. She's persisting. By the way, that, that says something about faith. Faith is faithful. She's persisting. And they're getting annoyed. The disciples saying, could you please send her away? She's annoying. And uh, Jesus finally turns to her and says, listen, I only came to the house of Israel to do these things. Uh, you're not a covenant person, therefore I can't do anything for you. And she says to him, you know, Jesus said, you know, you cannot give the children's bread to dogs. In other words, you don't fit the, you know, the criteria to get anything. And I love her response. You know what she says to Jesus? She says, that may be true, Lord, but listen to this. When the kids are eating at the kitchen table, even the crumbs fall off the table, the dogs can get that. Just give me a crumb. That's all I need from you. You know? And what does Jesus say? He says, woman, you have great faith. Matter of fact, if the word there's mega faith. How many of you like the word mega? Yeah. yeah, mega faith. You have mega faith. He says to her, your request is granted, and her daughter was healed from that very hour. So why am I bringing these stories up? Because these people demonstrated confidence in what God had to do, and they didn't just intellectually say, well, I believe that. No, they persisted. They faithfully held on to you know, what God was going to do in their situation. I like what Ed Dobson writes. He says, this woman's faith could not, be de- you know, could not be denied. Her faith did not deny the problem, but rather went directly to the source of blessing. She threw herself at the feet of Jesus, submitting to his plan and purposes for that situation. Her faith was persistent. She kept crying out to him, even though others around were, putting, were put off by her and desired her to be silent. Her faith was anchored in Scripture. She called him the son of David. She knew who he was. Though Jesus pointed out his mandate at that moment was to the lost sheep of Israel, and that was the children's portion, she took hold of that promise and stated that even the scraps from the table, dogs were able to receive. The beauty of the story is that it was the woman's faith, not her daughter's, that really brought about the healing in her daughter's life. And I, I want to just say this to us right now. Faith or being faithful is so critical, not just for ourselves, but for all the people who do not have faith. I want you to think about that for a minute. You know, think about the man who's paralyzed. What did these guys do? Four friends came along, and they brought him to Jesus. Tore up the roof, lowered him down, and the Bible says when Jesus saw the man's faith, No, it says, when he saw their faith. See, when you and I start living a life of faith or a life of faithfulness, it's going to begin to impact the people who have no faith. How do people come to Christ? It doesn't come because of their faith. It comes because of other people believing, praying, bringing these situations to God's attention. That's how we influence and impact the lives of other people. Listen to what Paul says. He's writing to the Philippians. He's he's in prison. He says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. In other words, 
Here's a mighty man of faith, but what does he say? I can't do this by myself. And so he appeals to the community of faith to join him in prayer so that he can experience freedom from his present circumstance. Isn't that great? Why am I saying all of this? Because a lot of times as North Americans, we're individualistic. And we think of it as ourselves. And I'm trying to teach us, we need to understand things in light of community. And we need to do things together. We need to, you know, help each other. We need to help uh, teach one another. We need to pray for one another. We need to care for one another, right? We need to bear one another's burdens. We need to develop this mindset that transcends the way our culture's operating. We gotta get beyond that. And when we do things together, all of a sudden, we're more dynamic and more powerful because we're in community than we're in isolation. I wrote a little spiritual equation. Notice the equation. Prayers of the saints plus the help of the Holy Spirit equals what? Deliverance. And so that's why it's important that we're doing this thing together. So I wanna go back now to our text and just say this. A life pleasing to God. What is a life pleasing to God? How do you know that you're pleasing God? Well, that's a part of it. It's broader than that, and we're going to get to there. But I think the life pleasing to God is really a life of faith. A life pleasing to God is a life of faithfulness. I'm using those terms interchangeably now. You see that? Let's go back. Verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So I could say that if you don't have faith, you can't please God. And if you're not a faithful person, you can't please God. Isn't that true? That's what it's saying. That's the point I'm driving at. So what does, what are some of the qualities? See, that's what the right answer was given back there. Some of the qualities of faith or faithfulness are. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. I want to give you four qualities of a life of faith which is a life pleasing to God, or a life of faithfulness, which is a life pleasing to God. And the first one is simply a life of sacrifice. And what I mean by sacrifice, I'm not talking about a, a difficulty or giving up something. I'm, I'm really talking about a life of worship, a life like Abel. We're going to pick on Abel for a minute. Abel came to God with his sacrifice, which was an expression of worship. He brought the firstlings of his flock, and he offered it to God. Obviously, took the life of the little sheep or the lamb or whatever. And uh, his offering was acceptable to God. Look at verse 4. By faith or faithfulness, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man. So that's, that's how we have a right relationship with God. When God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks even though he is dead. So the question naturally arises... Why was Abel's sacrifice accepted by God and Cain's sacrifice was rejected by God? Because if you read the story back in Genesis, that's exactly what happens. Now, New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce says this. He says, Abel offered firstlings, Cain offered firstfruits. And accordingly, that it's not Cain's offering as such which was rejected, but rather Cain himself an opinion that is perhaps supported by Genesis 4-7 where it says, and the Lord said to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Now, there's been a lot of dispute about these two. I've heard sermons on it, and some have preached, you know, well, the reason why Abel's offering was accepted was because it was a blood sacrifice. You know, and that's to be a shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. But most scholars don't believe that's the primary reason. That's not it. 
The main reason was because what was going on in Cain's heart. See, what, what happens is uh, there's a general agreement that it's the inward disposition or motivation of a person offering the sacrifice which is of first importance. And what I mean by that is when God looks at our lives, he sees why we're doing what we're doing. He's looking right in our innermost motivations. He knows the disposition and attitudes of our minds. He understands why we do what we do. Sometimes we don't even know why we're doing what we're doing. But a lot of times why we do what we do is not so much because we want to please God. It's just because we want to be perceived as being spiritual or have people esteem us or whatever motivation. You know, maybe we get some benefit from doing this or we feel good about it. You know, some people say, well, I love giving because it makes me feel good. Well, that's a motivation. It's about you. It's about making you feel better. And what I'm trying to get at is what God is looking at is why are you doing this? And ultimately, the reason why we should be living life. Well, let's just talk about that for a moment. You know, why am I living? What's the purpose of my life? Why are you living? What's the purpose of your life? You ever sat down and asked yourself that? Well, the purpose of my life is... What are some answers? Well, to glorify God. That's a good answer. What else? To serve God. That's a good answer. Any others? To make him known. To make him known. Okay. Fulfill the Great Commission. Here, I'm going to give you one that Paul says. For me to live is Christ. And what he means by that is he says, you know what? I live for one purpose. I'm Christ's man. I'm no longer my own. I'm dead. The man that you met there before the road to Damascus, he's no longer in existence. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Therefore, I give myself lock, stock, and barrel to him. I'm living for him. I'm going to make a suggestion today. I'm going to make a, a, pass a thought to you that you and I, need to decide why am I living? What is my purpose? And if you answer that question correctly, I think you're going to have a lot more joy in your life. See, because I think a lot of people go, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm, I've got my own agenda and I'm asking God to help me do it. And then we're disappointed with God because he doesn't always show up and do our agenda. And I'm going to suggest this thought to us today that if you and I say, God, it's not what I want, it's what you want, what are we doing? And I try to live out his will for my life, all of a sudden, all the resources of heaven start moving my way because God is helping me fulfill his will for my life. It's a totally different way of looking. It's a major paradigm shift. It's moving from, you know, God is my helper, which he always is anyways, but from the idea that I'm in control to allowing God to be God. And that changes everything in our lives. Now, it's interesting, Gregory the Great said this, was not the offer who received approval because of the offerings, but the offerings because of the offer. In other words, it's not so much the gift that touches the heart of God, but rather the heart of the giver. That's what's moving God. So he's not looking at how big of a gift we're giving or how much of a sacrifice it is. He's looking at our heart attitude. When he knows that you and I are giving our best to him, he loves that. That's, you know, some people could give a lot, but it may not be their best. And you and I would be impressed with that, but God is not as impressed. But what he's impressed with is the person who's giving everything. He's giving God, she's giving God everything they have. He's, they're giving their best, okay? 
And so how does this apply to our lives as believers today? What sacrifice is God looking for in our lives? And Paul tells us, Brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And what is this called? Your spiritual act of worship. This is what true worship is. God, here's my life. I give it to you. And I don't just do this on a Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. I give you my life every single moment of every single day. My life belongs to you. I live for you. And, you know, that, that, does that mean I don't have fun in life? You know, I'm just totally devoted and holy to God. I can't do anything, can't play soccer, can't play baseball, can't play football. That'd be a drag. I like those things, you know? <laughs> no, it's not that at all. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is, is that our lives are designed to please God, and we're giving ourselves to God, and there's an appropriate time for every activity under the sun. But most of the time, we're so messed up in our thinking that we, we tend to be, become addictive. We're also, you know, we, we, uh, or we, we deny ourselves things that we think are, you know, going to make us more spiritual. And half the time, it's not making us more spiritual. It's making us more miserable. You know, and we're more critical and more judgmental of other people. That's wrong, right? What am I trying to say? Put God first. Serve him. Live for him. Cain was given an opportunity to repent and change his mind, but what did he do? He killed his brother. See, God knew what was in his heart. God says, you know what? There's sin. It's desiring to master you. Repent, and then I'll accept your offering. What did Cain do? He killed his brother because he was jealous of him. You know, that shows you the the disposition and the condition of his heart. My point is simply this, that God is looking at the attitudes of our lives, you know, a lot, of, a lot of us in this room, we're, we're busy comparing ourselves with other people. We're seeking people's approval. You know, a lot of times we're functioning with a lot of insecurity. Come on now. And what I'm saying to you is when you forget about yourself, you'll no longer be so hung up about your insecurities. It's just a thought. When you're trying to please the audience of one, you're not so concerned about what everybody else is saying. I can't control what people say about me, by the way. That's their business. I can only control my attitude and behavior. Amen? That's all you can control. So don't worry about what everybody's saying, thinking, or doing. Please God. Because sometimes people will say that you're a great person and you know that deep down inside you've got some issues, right? People, people can say you're better than you really are. People can say you're worse than you really are. I'm at a stage where I'm saying I don't really care what they think. I'm more concerned about what God thinks. That's what's driving my life. God, what do you think? What do you want? That's the most important. That's what we need to understand. Let me move on to the second quality. It's not just a life of sacrifice or worship, but it's a life of supplication. And what I mean by supplication, it's a fancy word, so I help alliterate my text. It's speaking of prayer. It's speaking of communion with God. Look at Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him Away, for before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Wow. How would you like to have that record? You're a person who pleases God. Isn't that nice? And then it goes on, but without faith, it's impossible to please God. This is where we get the story from, from Enoch. But you know when I read the Old Testament, it never once used the word pleased God. Isn't that interesting? Let's take a look at Genesis. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. How many know who Methuselah is? Bible trivia. Oldest man that ever lived. 969 years old. He died. Okay. 
Here's his daddy, Enoch. He was 65 years and he became the father of Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God. 300 years and had other sons and daughters. And altogether, Enoch lived 365 years and Enoch walked with God and then he was no more because God took him away. In those four verses, what did the book of Hebrews, the writer, take that tells you that he thinks that Enoch pleased God? The answer is he walked with God. And isn't it interesting, earlier it says before his son, it says here, and after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God. What does that suggest to you? That before he had his son, he didn't walk with God. Isn't that what he's saying? Yes. And you know what I've discovered? That oftentimes it takes a significant event in our life and it takes significant responsibilities to help us walk with God. And I'll tell you right now, more of us would walk better with God if we had more responsibility on our plate. It's getting real quiet in here. What helps me walk with God is the fact that I have to be a pastor and it shapes me up. I end up doing things I normally wouldn't do. I have to study more than I would. I can tell you right now, I don't think I would have ever studied as much of the Bible if I had not been a pastor. I'm just gonna tell you flat out. I mean, as much as I like to study, I can't even see myself studying this much. I was forced at times to study when I didn't feel like it. See what I'm saying? So responsibility is actually an ally. And most of us in this culture, we're trying to avoid it. Come on now. We don't want to take on any more responsibility. And I'm going, responsibility shapes you up. It's good for you. It's healthy. It's healthy. And a lot of people are trying to shed it instead of embrace it. And I'm telling you it's an ally, not a foe. Okay? So, now we have he's walking with God. So when you're walking with somebody, what does that suggest? You have what? Relationship. Relationship. And if you have a relationship, what does that suggest to you? You've got to be communicating. And that's why I said he was praying. That's why he's connecting to God. He has a relationship with God. You know, you don't have a relationship with somebody if you're not communicating with them. So Enoch was a communicator. He was a man who walked with God. And I want to ask a question this morning. How's your walk with God? Are you walking with God? Are you communicating to God? Are you connecting with God? Are you listening to God? Because, you know, in communication, it's not me talking all the time. i got to listen. Right? It's a two-way street. That's communication. You know, I love the story, and I, I probably shared it years ago, but the story of a small town in which there were no liquor stores. Eventually, a nightclub was built right on Main Street. Members of one of the church were so disturbed that they conducted several all-night prayer meetings and asked God to burn that den of iniquity. And it wasn't too much longer when lightning struck the club. It was completely destroyed by fire. The owner found out that the church people had prayed and was now suing them for damages. His attorney claimed that their prayers had caused their loss. The congregation, on the other hand, hired a lawyer and fought the charges. And after much deliberation, the judge finally said this. No matter how this case comes out, one thing is clear. The nightclub owner believes in prayer. The church members do not. (laughs) Uh, I couldn't resist. Why is it that we don't pray? Isn't that a great question? Why don't we pray more? And I think I have an answer. And I think the answer is... Because we feel so unworthy. We just don't feel like, you know, who's God to pay attention to me? And I want to give you the good news today. 
None of us are worthy. So we don't come to God based on our worthiness. That's the good news. How do we come to him? We have a faithful high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. Those are two negatives. So therefore, we do have a high priest who is, is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way. Jesus understands temptation, and yet he was without sin. And then let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. And a number of weeks ago I said that word confidence means the right to be heard. We can approach God with an understanding we have the right to be heard to find what? Grace and mercy in our time of need. And if you look up those words grace and mercy, what you're gonna find out is mercy is God doesn't give you what you deserve, which is a good kick in the pants, and he gives us grace, something we don't deserve, which is his favor and blessing. So we can come to God and say, God, I know I don't deserve this, but I know how good you are, and I'm going to ask anyways. And that's my approach to prayer. So people say to me, well, how come you pray for everything? It's because my attitude is, well, if you don't ask, you're never going to get it, and all God can say is no. So I just keep asking. How's that? And you know what happens every once in a while? He, he, he not only answers my prayer, he goes beyond my answer. I go, wow, I asked for this and I'm getting all of that bonus. So I'm encouraging you guys. We need to ask a lot more. Amen? And don't worry about the nightclub owner. Okay, the third, the third uh, quality is not... Is not only a life of sacrifice, a life of supplication, but a life of service. Somebody yelled that out earlier. Let me just say this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, we are told, uh, we are, for we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. You know what's interesting? That when you and I become a Christian, we have a smell. We have an odor. That's what it says. You know, and for some people, now it's an aroma of Christ. God loves that aroma, by the way. It's a sweet-smelling aroma to God. But, you know, to the ones that are perishing, we're the smell of death. How many of you ever notice, you know, sometimes people don't like you just because you're a Christian? How many have ever experienced that? They don't like you just because you're a Christian. Because you stink. You smell like death to them. You smell like judgment to them. They don't want to smell that smell. They, they want to live in denial. There's an odor there they don't want to have. But then it says, and to the other, you're the fragrance of life. So, you know, it's always great when you run into a true believer and you go, man, it's so, I, can I could tell. I could tell you were a Christian. There's an odor about you, you know. It's the odor of Christ. It's the new perfume, the odor of Christ. You're wearing it. You have the odor of Christ on. I can tell. Isn't that neat? Well, I'm just kind of helping us remember this stuff. Listen to what it says here, verse 7. By faith Noah, when warned about things not seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah was warned by God and he acted on what God said and as a result of his obedience, his family became believers. And can I just say this, that when you and I are faithful, when you and I are people of faith, we actually bring salvation into many places. We bring it into our homes. We bring it into our descendants. You know, my family, they were believers further up. Then there were people who really got away from God. 
And then I look back and I say, why am I a Christian today? Because I grew up in a really dysfunctional, broken down mess of a family. But now I look back and I go, oh yeah, but I had praying grandparents. Oh, look out for praying grandparents. They can get to you. So you know those little old people that are praying and you're mocking them? They got more power than you know. They're going to get you. You may be strong, you may be fast, but you can't outrun God. And their prayers are going to catch up to you. They're going to get you. I can guarantee you. Might as well stop running. They're going to get you. You know. And, you know, then I had people that were so devout. They were actually in ministry, you know. I even had, you know, people that were in religious orders in my, my side of the family. And they devoted themselves to prayer. So, you know, it's really good that you have devout people in your life. Because those people pray, and they impact you. You know, I'm already praying for my granddaughter, and I'm taking promises that says, your descendants, I'm going to save you and your descendants. And I'm going, okay, Ari, you're down. That's it. You don't have any hope. You're going to serve Christ. You know? <laughs> I'm claiming her for Jesus. You know, my daughter phones me the other day. She goes, Dad, Ari says, gets up. She goes, I want to go to church, and it's not even Sunday. I'm going, good. You know? She's already getting wired the right way. I like that. I, I appreciate that. So what is our business? Somebody hollered it out earlier. We're to make disciples. And I think that's really important that we need to be about the Father's business. Isn't that true? Jesus was out about the Father's business. We need to be about our Father's business. And you know, I, I want to tell you the story. This is really amazing. There was, uh, this was back a number of years ago, quite a few years ago, and there was a convention going on in this town, and all of the hotels were booked. You can appreciate that can happen. And the man came to the lobby, and he wanted to get a room, and there's no rooms available. Doesn't know where he's going to stay. And an older gentleman was sitting in the lobby. He said, listen, there's an extra bed in our room. You can stay in my room. He says, really? He said, you don't mind? Yeah, not a problem. So they go up to the room. They introduce themselves. And the elderly gentleman, before he goes to bed, he kneels down by his bed, and he starts praying. And he starts praying for the guy that he's invited, and he prayed for him by name that God would bless him. So that was fine. Next morning they got up. The older guy gets out of bed. He says, listen, I have a habit. My habit is to spend time with God every morning. I read the scriptures and I pray. Would you like to join me? And the older, younger guy said, okay, sure, fine. Let's do it. And so the older guy leads him in this devotional. And the next thing you know, he's sharing about Jesus. This young man gives his life to Christ. And uh, they exchange business cards. And the guy was shocked when he got this guy's business card because, you know, William Jennings Bryant, if you know that name, he actually ran to be nominee for the President of the United States. So that was the older gentleman. And so here's a man who's got a tremendously busy, pressure-filled life about the king's business, the Father in Heaven's business. So, you know, we have to sit down and say, what's our business? Listen, our business is being concerned for other people. It's very important that we have that concern for others. You know. Now I want to just mention an opportunity here. A lot of times we go, I don't even know what I'm doing half the time past. I don't know how to lead anybody to Christ. I don't know what I'm doing about discipleship. You don't have to do it alone. We have opportunities to do it together. You know last year we, we held a vacation Bible school. And what that is is an opportunity for children to come to learn about Christ. And last year, young children came and they had never heard about Jesus and many of them gave their lives to Christ. And actually, some families started coming to our church as a result of these children giving their lives to Christ and they gave their lives to Christ. Now, 
Here's the deal. Maybe you're not a Bible teacher, but you know how many know you can, you say, well, hey, I could come. Maybe some, one of the, it usually runs from nine to noon, Monday through Friday, and you have to prepare snacks for the kids. I want to just say the person who's preparing snack for the kids is going to get the same reward in heaven as the person leading the kid to Christ. You did that last year. Well, see there, Judy, you get the same thing. Man, that's great. You go, how do you come up with this stuff, Pastor? Well, it says if you give a cold cup of water and a prophet's name, you get the prophet's reward. So you're just, you're, you're, you know, what am I saying to us? You don't have to do this all by yourself. We can do this as a team. And you know, I'm going to tell you right now, we have a great opportunity, and I, I think this is an important one. In, in Canada today, Canadians are more concerned about their families than any other item. If you did a survey right now, say, what's the, the, the one, the, the most important thing to you in your life? Most Canadians would say my family. That would be number one. If we can touch their children's lives, we touch them. And a lot of times, you can't even talk to the adult. They're not interested in spiritual things. But if they let their kids come to Sunday uh, vacation Bible school and they get saved, they say, hey, Mom, come on to the Friday night event. And they hear the gospel and the parents hear it. A lot of them are responding because they've never heard it before. They have just a, a bias by the media many times against church. They don't know any better. So we have to build bridges. And the best way to build bridges is into people's families and into their children. So I want to encourage you, you know, take the time. You know, what t- you know, use the time in a powerful way. This is a great way to do it. So I'm, a little plug for VBS here. They need, I know they need more people to help them with that. You know, you could be a person that would be instrumental to touch a child's life. And you don't know the child that you're touching, the hundreds or maybe thousands of people that child's going to touch in their lifetime. You have no idea. Only God knows. Let me move on to the final quality here. Life of sacrifice, life of supplication, life of service. Finally, a life of submission. What I mean by submission is a life of obedience. Look at verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. He just did what God told him to do. Now, let me just say, when you look at the Great Commission, I think we've said it over and over again. I'm quoting from Matthew 28 verses 19 to 20. Look what, listen what he says. He says, go into all the world and make disciples of every, of every nation, every people group. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to say, teaching them to obey all things I've commanded you. Now I want to stop there for a minute. Teaching them to obey. I don't think a person's a disciple until they've learned the most important lesson. What is the most important lesson, Pastor? When a person understands that they're to obey. See, when you make that paradigm shift, it's not my life, it's his life. Then you become a disciple of Christ. I think until you've done that, you're not a, you're not a disciple. I don't know what you are, you're in limbo. You're, you grew up around it, you've got all kinds of knowledge, but obedience is so critical to this whole process. You can't even call Jesus Lord unless you, uh, somebody, that, somebody who's your Lord is somebody who is telling you what to do and you're doing it. That's your Lord. Okay, is this making, making sense to us? So it's gonna take a lifetime to teach everybody what Jesus said, but if you can teach them obedience, how important is that? What's the thing I do as a parent? I have a little child, what am I teaching them? Obedience, why? Obedience is the most important lesson we teach a child. 
Because if a child doesn't listen to us, they're going to do stupid things. They're going to do childish things that's going to damage their life. Right? A healthy child is an obedient child. A disobedient child, a rebellious child is going to have all kinds of problems. Not only in childhood, not only in their teen years, but I can guarantee you on and on it goes into their life. They're going to have all kinds of issues. True? It's the truth. Teaching them to obey. Now, I'm going to close with this. I think once a person has learned that concept, growth is inevitable. You're bound to grow spiritually. Listen to what James says. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Here's my biggest concern as a pastor, that all you are is a hearer, that all you are is an intake taker. You've got the right head pack. You've got the right information. You know what the Bible says. You know about Christianity, but you're not doing it. You're in a state of self-deception. That's what James is saying. Do what it says. Then he goes on to say, anyone who listens to this word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. What's he saying? No benefit. It's no benefit to have a knowledge of Christianity but you're not not into it in an experiential way. We read it this morning. Taste and see that the Lord is good. The word taste there, the idea is that you have to experience. Tasting is an experiential thing. Taste this food. Come on and taste it. You can't just look at it, smell it. You know, you can study its qualities and textures. You can find out all the ingredients. But until you taste it, you've not experienced it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Experience it. Do it. Embrace it. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law, that what? Gives freedom. There's a lot of people that aren't free. You have to experience the word of God to have freedom. And continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Now, I got questions for us. Are we living a life of faith? Question number one. Only you can answer that. Are you living a life of faith? Am I living a life of faith? Am I living a faithful life? Am I a faithful person? Am I a worshiping person? Am I a serving person? Am I reaching out to others? Am I living a life of obedience? Because if I'm not doing that, I'm not pleasing God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Remember Jesus gave a parable. And here's what he said in this parable. Last verse. In this parable, Jesus says, you know what? He gave him five talents, two talents, one talent. Remember that? And he left. And then he came back. It's a picture of God leaving us with a responsibility. He leaves, but he's coming back. Or we're going to go meet him. We're all going to stand before him one day. There's going to be a big accountability. And as we're standing before him, here's what he says. What did you do with the talents I left behind? What did you do with what I put into your life? What did you do with the gifts and the skills and the abilities and opportunities I put into your life? And we go, Lord, you gave me this. This is what I've done with them. You gave me five talents. Here's five more. What does Jesus say? Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'm going to put you in charge of many things. What is Jesus saying to us? Look, I've got a, I, you know, life is only preparing us for eternity. 
If you're faithful down here and the little that God gives you, God says, I've got some bigger, bigger fish to fry in heaven. I've got bigger fish to fry in eternity. You've got a bigger assignment coming up. But you know what? The guy that had two talents, he says, hey, I gave you, I doubled your amount. I've, I've, I've put it to use. I've got two more talents. Well done. Same statement. But then the one guy that had one talent, what did he do? He buried it. And what does Jesus say? You wicked and lazy servant. That's pretty strong language from Jesus, wouldn't you say? Wicked and lazy. And then he says, you're going to be in outer darkness. Now what does he mean by that? He means you're not going to be in my presence. Right? You're going to be in outer darkness. That's an that's a expression of speech that says you're not going to be with me in all of eternity. I want to make the statement. This is going to be radical for some of you. If you are not faithful you're not going to be in heaven. Is that sobering? If you don't have faith, you don't please God. If you're not a faithful person, you don't please God. God's not going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That ought to shake some of you up. If you're, if you're saying, you know, I just it's all head knowledge with me. I say, no good. I don't want to be, I, I'm, I'm a pastor. I, I don't want to say before the Lord, you know, I, didn't, I never warned these guys about this, God. That wasn't good, Paul. But today, I warned you. You're going to remember this day. I prayed this morning. I was up really early. I prayed. I said, Lord, this is going to be a message that has eternal significance. Because for some of you, this is your wake-up call. You better do something. You better realize believing the right thing is different than living the right thing. Amen. Amen. Are we getting it? How many, are, this, how many understood what I said? So I know we're always worried about, well, I don't want to do anything like it appears that I have to, I'm trying to earn my way to heaven. Get that out of your thinking right now. What I'm saying to you is, if you're not doing good works, you are probably not even have faith. You're probably not even saved. James would argue with you, I can show you my faith by my good works. But faith alone with no works is dead faith. It's not real. Is that making sense? I hope I explained it to you as clearly as I could because it's very important you get this. So we're going to stand right now. I'm going to close in prayer. With every head bowed, every eye closed, let me ask the question. How many here say, you know, Pastor, this has really rattled my cage a little bit. It was designed to rattle your cage a little bit. I want you to be ready for heaven. I want you to be a faithful person. I want you to be a person of faith, to be faithful, to please God, to hear the commendation from Christ. I want the angels rejoicing over you. That's what I want for you. I'm not going to be rejoicing if you get to heaven and you buried what God put into your life and God goes, you're a wicked, lazy person. Away from me. Yeah, but God, I never knew you. I don't want that for you. You know, I want you to have the opportunity today to say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, empower me. Lord, help me to be a person of faith. Lord, help me to be a faithful person. I'm not trying to guilt trip you, but I'm just saying to you, listen, find out how you're wired and get with it. Amen? Participate. How many are here for me? Responsibility is a blessing. Responsibility is going to help you grow spiritually. 
You know, I have grown over 39 years. I'm not the same person, believe me. I have changed because I've had responsibility. It's pressured me. And it's been a good pressure. And I still have it. And that's why I like pastoring. I like the pressure. It's forcing me to do some things I normally wouldn't do. I wouldn't study this much. I already know that. But this is forcing me. Now, I know some pastors study less than I do. That's, that's fine and dandy. But I want to give God my best. Amen. See, I belong to him. I want to give him my best. How many here say, Pastor, I want to give God my best? That's you today. I want to give God my best. I want to take on the responsibility that God's calling me to. Raise your hand. That's you. Got my hand up. I want to take on that responsibility. If I don't know what it is today, I'm prepared to, to try things. I'm prepared to ask God to guide my steps. Amen? Now, not every need may be a need that you need to meet. But I'll say this. If you get up in the morning and say, okay, God, it's your day. I'm here for you. What are we doing? And even though you may have a whole bunch of things you need to do that day, just be open to the people God brings into your life. They're not interruptions. They're opportunities. Okay? And God is leading you to minister to some of those people. It's changing your orientation. I'm trying to get you to become a Christ-oriented person, not a self-oriented person. I want you to assume responsibility. I want you to take those things on. And I want to watch how God is going to use your life in a powerful way. You're going to be a powerhouse. You don't know that, but I'll tell you, you will be. And you're going to grow in confidence. You say, well, I have so many insecurities, Pastor. I guarantee you, you take on God's responsibility for your life, even the insecurities will start dropping off. It will, it'll happen. I can tell you that. I was insecure in many areas, and God just started dropping those stuff off. Amen? And as you start doing things, you know, I'm at a stage in my life now where I'm willing to take and do things that I, even if I fail, it doesn't matter anymore. I'm not afraid to fail. And because of that, I'm succeeding at higher levels. Hallelujah. Isn't that good? Amen. I'm just telling you, you can rise above who you are today if you will say, God, I will take on your call for my life. I will become an obedient person. I will be a faithful person, Lord. Show me what you want to do. I will do it even at times. It may seem difficult, strange, overwhelming. I'm going to do it. And you're going to grow into it. I can guarantee you, you're going to grow up. You're going to be powerhouses for God. So let me pray for you. Lord, I thank you this morning for your beautiful people that I know you love with all of your heart. I love them. You love them. You want them to succeed. You want them to be faithful. And we're here to cheer them on, Father. We're not here to criticize. We're not here to condemn. But Lord, I'm praying right now that all of the inhibitions and fears that are keeping us from becoming all that you want us to be, Father, we lay them down today and we embrace your call. And we're going to walk in obedience. And we're going to give ourselves to you anew and afresh. And Lord, look out. Because we have no idea where this has taken us. But we know it's going to impact the lives of people around us. In Jesus' name, amen. God